Why is freedom of speech an important value in democratic society? And what are the potential threats and challenges facing free speech, particularly in South Africa? Well, recently, a new piece of draft legislation was put before the National Assembly, which would amend the Equality Act, which is a law which governs various aspects of free speech and hate speech. Joining me to discuss the potential risks in this legislation and also the importance of free speech more broadly is advocate Mark Oppenheimer. Mark is with the Johannesburg Bar and he has a special interest in free speech and also constitutional law more broadly. Mark, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Thanks for having me. So Mark, let's start off with Papuda itself, the equality law that I mentioned in my introduction. What is Papuda and how does it work? So Papuda is the legislation which regulates hate speech in South Africa. Um, it also creates the equality courts, and this is the, the venue in which hate speech disputes um, are resolved. Uh, it's been quite controversial. There's been much debate about defining what hate speech is, um, and um, the hate speech section itself was found to be unconstitutional by our Supreme Court of Appeal, and that question is now um, being decided on appeal by the Constitutional Court. It also deals with uh, unfair discrimination. Um, so it's recognized that some forms of discrimination might be justifiable, um, but if they are unfair, there can be sanctions attached to it. Uh, and it also has provisions which um, prohibit harassment. So in broad terms, that is what the legislation governs. Okay, Mark, so could you give us more background into this proposed amendment and what is being put on the table? And you know, one of the concerns that, that I've seen is the change of this definition of uh, equality and discrimination. So those two terms which are in the existing act, uh, what is the significance of that? That seems fairly innocuous, but perhaps you could help our, our viewers and listeners to understand the risks that underlie that. Yes, so the terms equality and discrimination are used throughout the primary uh, legislation. So their redefinition in the amendment bill would have quite broad uh, effects. So first of all, one of the things that it does with regards to discrimination is remove the, the requirement that discrimination must be done intentionally. And then it also broadens its scope. Um, so at the moment, discrimination is about imposing burdens or obligations or withholding benefits or opportunities and doing it on the grounds of a sort of set of protected characteristics like race or sex or you know gender those sorts of things this now also adds in um, acts or omissions which cause prejudice or otherwise undermine the dignity of someone and it doesn't even have to be the case that it's on one of these listed grounds uh, just that there's some kind of connection with the ground so it doesn't have to be the dominant or the sole reason so why that matters is this idea of fault is seen as a major requirement in our law so if you think about committing a crime uh, it's not sufficient that you merely perform an action so killing another human being is not murder you have to do it with intent um, you know or you've got to do it negligently like in a corporal homicide case um, so this this is something we can touch on in, in some detail but it's it's a flag worth raising with regards to equality um, again we have a sort of redefinition and this idea is to sort of move away from that kind of equality before the law, everyone having uh, an equal opportunity, 
and this is to move towards an equality of outcomes uh, that everyone must have equal rights to resources opportunities benefits and advantages and this idea that we must have substantive equality and as we'll see through our discussion this becomes very onerous on those that are meant to provide the substantive equality that are meant to provide all of these resources to everybody so mark when we talk about equality i mean that seems like a nice concept something worth striving for it's good to treat people equally and not based on say arbitrary characteristics like the color of their skin or or the language that they speak uh, but why is this problem of uh, equality of outcomes something that you're concerned with what and what's the difference between that and the quality of opportunity? Yeah, so if you think about uh, running a race, for example, if you think that everybody should start in the same position um, when, you, when you fire off the gun, but then depending on who trained harder for the race, uh, who's more athletic, who's better, you know, those are the people that should be able to prosper. Um, now, equality of outcomes would ensure that everybody finishes at identical times. And one way to do that would be to impose uh, burdens on those that are the most meritorious, those that are the fittest, uh, to shackle them so that they run slower and ensure that they come out at exactly the same you know, time as those that are the worst in the race. Um, there's a famous story written by Kurt Vonnegut called uh, Harrison Bergeron, and it opens with the line, we finally achieved equality in the year 2081. And it's a story about... Um, this this family of people who are reasonably gifted in some sort of way so the son is uh, very strong uh, very smart so he has to wear uh, these headphones uh, which blast sounds at him so that his, his thoughts are interrupted he has to carry around these uh, you know huge heavy sacks so that he's weakened um, and that's one way that you can achieve equality of outcomes is to ensure that everybody is equally poorly off it's very hard to ensure that everybody is equally prosperous um, and, you know, one way you could do that is to try and, you know, uh, take from those that have things and redistribute them. Now, we've tried this experiment before. So if you look at, at countries that had a, you know, utopian ideal of everyone having the same outcomes, you know, this is what was tried in the Soviet Union, this is what was tried in, uh, under Mao's China, uh, to devastating effects. Um, you know, this, this kind of communism led to the deaths of 100 million people. Um, you know, societies that say, everybody should have an equal go at it, um, that we shouldn't you know, impose burdens arbitrarily, um, those societies tend to prosper. So you know, when, those, when people are incentivized to be meritorious, to try and excel, to be the best possible people they can be, you know, um, those places are places that you want to live and they're often best for those that are at the bottom of the pile. You know, you'd much rather be uh, poor uh, well, you know, let's say at, at the bottom of the pile in a place like America than, you know, um, than the Soviet Union. Well, you mentioned earlier this idea of the fault requirement, which is something that is quite prevalent in South African law. And one of the uh, issues that you raise here is, is that people could be potentially held liable for unintentional acts uh, that, that they commit which may uh, be perceived as discriminatory or harmful in some way. Could you unpack that for our listeners, please? Yes. So I'll give you a, a, a good example. During apartheid, um, the test for defamation for the press was, did you say something defamatory? And you had a strict liability offense. So uh, it didn't require the press to have done it intentionally or negligently. The only question was, did you injure someone's reputation through what you published? Um, and this obviously had 
big restrictions on the press um, and made it much more difficult for them to publish things. You had this chilling effect. And after our constitution um, was produced, the Supreme Court of Appeal held that this kind of strict liability account of defamation was unconstitutional. Um, and that if you look at the rest of our law, it builds in this notion of intent, that we think that people's mental states matters. We don't just you know, uh, hold them liable because someone else feels injured by it. Um, so, so that's quite an important factor. Um, and the difficulty with imposing these kinds of burdens, so that term discrimination includes all acts and omissions. So failing to do something um, that causes someone to suffer a prejudice um, would put you in this bind. Uh, so there's a sense in which one of the reasons why we think that intentions matter is so that you can know whether you're about to break the law or not. Um, that you can conduct yourself in a manner um, where you can avoid being held liable. And so if you've got acts and omissions that can make you liable without intent, you can have these bizarre situations occurring. So for example, in the States, they're contemplating a ban on menthol cigarettes. So the Food and Drug Administration has taken the view that menthol cigarettes have a disproportionate effect on African Americans um, and that they are more likely to smoke those cigarettes and suffer all the, the health um, detriments that come with smoking cigarettes. And so they've said that um, a ban is needed to avoid discrimination. Now, Al Sharpton, who's a very prominent civil rights leader, um, has said that a ban on menthol cigarettes would itself be discriminatory against African Americans because it is a cigarette that they uh, tend to enjoy disproportionately to other population groups in America. And he says they enjoy it so much that they would risk confrontations with the police um, by buying and selling illegal forms of the cigarette. And he says, therefore, the ban would be discriminatory. Now, if you look at what the proposed legislation does with the Equality Act, it means that both of those actions would be a breach. Um, and so now you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And this is just one particular example of it, but you can think of a plethora of examples where you could find yourself liable for acting or not acting. Yeah, and I think intentionality is a very important measure. Uh, you know, people can be sensitive to or find things offensive uh, for various reasons, especially uh, in today's social media age where it's very easy to, to trigger people and for them to, to take offense. Yes, very much so. Um, and we have to sort of remind ourselves, well, you know, there are different values in the Constitution. So dignity is an important value. And, you know, you want to be able to protect people's dignity. Um, but free speech is another fundamental value. And it's often forgotten why free speech is important, you know, why we want to allow people to say things that might hurt other people's feelings that might make people uncomfortable. And, you know, one of the core reasons why free speech matters so much is this quest for truth. So often saying things um, and putting them out into the public arena will allow other people to test their ideas out. Um, you know, people have often said things that were deeply unpopular, which turned out to be true. You know, so it used to be, you know, a strongly held wisdom that the earth was the center of the universe and to, you know, submit otherwise was heretical. Um, but it was a false mistaken belief. Um, so it's important that people are able to, you know, put out their ideas, even if they turn out to be wrong, they're useful for sharpening the swords of others. And so this is one of those values that, you know, our constitutional court has recognized. And it's one of the cherished reasons for protecting free speech. So Mark, I'm not a lawyer, but there's a term in this proposed legislation, uh, which refers to uh, vicarious liability, uh, which my understanding of that would be that you would be extending liability to 
perhaps non-parties or indirect parties like say an employer or members of a club or association uh, is, is that the correct interpretation? What, what would be the significance of introducing this into the current uh, equality law? Yeah, so the way that the, the act works at the moment is that you can hold a person liable who performs one of the contraventions. In other words, they're doing the harassing, the discriminating or uttering hate speech. And it's seen as like a, a personal wrong. Um, and so you want to hold that person liable. So uh, the Equality Act is a strange beast in that it doesn't create crimes. Um, but it does allow the state to lay claims against you. So the Human Rights Commission um, can lay a, a claim against you and they're sort of uh, an organ of state. So we call it sui generis. Um, it, it looks like, uh, like criminal statutes in some ways and that you can be fined, um, but also you can have two private parties initiating against each other and that it looks much more civil in nature. Now, what this will do is extend liability to employers. So for example, you can have a situation where um, someone commits one of these offenses um, during the course and scope of their employment. And instead of just holding them liable for it, you can hold the employer liable for it. And the employer will often have deeper pockets. And of course, the difficulty is once we've removed intent, you have a situation where it's quite hard to tell your employees what they should do to not get you into trouble. Um, because basically someone interacting with one of your employees who says, well, I felt prejudiced by something your employee did or failed to do. Um, and I'm now suing you, the employer for it. Um, you know, it, it just kind of creates this, um, this real tension in the workplace because everybody's not sure if they're doing the right thing. So Mark, what about other kinds of organizations? So civil society groups, NGOs, religious organizations, you know, this law seems to give quite an exaggerated level of power to the state to set codes of practice for these organizations and, and to essentially police not only their speech, but also the principles by which they define their very existence. What are some of your concerns that, that you've observed in terms of uh, the, the kind of civil society impacts that this could have? Well, this is something well worth highlighting because it's really buried in the amendment. So if you look at the ad for the amendment that was put out by government, you know, it mentions the redefinitions, but it doesn't mention this very heavy handed regulation of civil society and of those that contract with the state. And really what it does is empower the government to uh, create codes to regulate these sectors. Um, and, and this is without any hint of irony, those codes don't have to be applied equally. So you can create codes based on the size of the organization or their resources. Um, so you could imagine, you know, a very particular code being brought in that's targeted at one particular organization to make their lives more difficult. Um, it also creates these quite onerous financial obligations. So organizations will have to set aside funds um, to help enhance equality and eliminate uh, discrimination. Now, that in itself sounds very nice. Everybody thinks equality is a good thing and everybody thinks discrimination is a bad thing. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, as we hinted at earlier, this redefinition of those terms so that they don't mean their ordinary meanings um, and they create these very burdensome obligations. Um, there's also a concern that given the government's obsession with um, demographic representativity, that those codes could then require organizations to make sure that their staff 
broadly reflect, let's say, you know, the the language or sexual orientation or uh, gender or race of the country. Um, and you can imagine that being anathema to particular organization's interests. So, for example, if you are an NGO that focuses on vendor as a language and you want to encourage people to speak vendor, you could suddenly be required to ensure that a certain percentage of your staff uh, speak Afrikaans uh, or speak uh, Tetswana uh, as opposed to speaking vendor. Um, so there's a concern that it's a backdoor route for government really to make it impossible for NGOs to do the work that's, that guides them and uh, to create these obligations so that when they, you know, full follow them, um, you know, maybe their license could be taken away um, or they could be fined. Mark, one of the institutional manifestations of the Papuda Act is the Equality Court, which is a body that adjudicates disputes around in issues of uh, perceived unfair discrimination, etc. cetera. Uh, what role does this court play? How does it fit into the kind of broader judicial system? And uh, how does it function well or otherwise? Yes, it's its own unique uh, creature. So there isn't a building called the Equality Court. Uh, really what happens is that magistrates courts and high courts can operate as equality courts, that judicial officers can go through a training process so that they can become equality court officials. Um, and then they're governed by this act uh, and it grants them certain powers. Um, the procedural powers tend to be governed by their particular court. So, you know, if you're running it out of a magistrate's court, those rules will apply. If you're running it out of a high court, those rules will apply. Um, it's in some sense, it was kind of two in one shampoo. So if you think about the CCMA, which is this arbitration body, the mediation body to deal with uh, labor disputes, you know, one of the processes that would be used was that it'd be quite informal. So people um, wouldn't go with legal representatives, they would have a, a dispute, but it would be something that there's an ongoing relationship. So if you work for someone and, you know, you feel like they're treating you badly and you want some external person to, you know, sit you around a table and, you know, work out if you can resolve the dispute, you know, that was seen as quite a useful thing. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think people thought the equality courts could be used for, which is to basically resolve these, um, you know, emotional disputes that, that arose between people. Um, so, you know, if you uh, used a racial invective against someone, you know, we could sit around the table, uh, we could have some sense of restorative justice, you know, and then we could, you know, move on in the relationship. But it hasn't actually played out that way. So when we look at the equality court cases that have occurred, they've tended to look much more like uh, criminal trials in the sense that um, being hauled before an equality court uh, is often publicly reported upon. Um, you know, they're the kind of things that, that make the press, um, that it's seen as something that can result in severe sanctions. So you can be heavily fined. Um, they, the matters tend to go on for quite long periods of time. Um, both sides tend to employ uh, expensive, uh, you know, lawyers to kind of run their cases. So often you'll see, you know, large teams involved in these matters. And so all that kind of informal mediation sort of stuff that is envisioned in the act, you know, we don't really see in practice, you know, it sort of, it looks much more like an Oscar Pistorius trial and that these, they run for long periods of time. Um, and in the sense that the stakes are quite high in them. All right. And one of those stakes obviously is financial stakes and the cost of litigation can be quite high. In terms of these proposed amendments, uh, it seems that one of the suggestions is to make state funding available for 
complainants, but not defendants. That seems to be a bit of a problem. Yes. Yeah, so if we think about how the legal aid system traditionally works, you know, it's often used for people that um, are accused of committing a crime. And so the idea is in order to, you know, balance the scales, because the state has, you know, an enormous amount of money available to it, uh, and you can have some poor person who's accused of a crime who's unable to afford a lawyer, the idea is that you then have legal aid for that person, um, because there are severe penalties that may ensue um, if they're not represented. And here what we have is the reversal of that. So the person laying the complaint can get access to legal aid, but the person who's uh, on the defending side doesn't get similar access to legal aid. And so, you know, for an act that's supposed to be about equality, uh, it seems to be acting in a rather discriminatory manner on that front. But also that people could lodge complaints against somebody who may have uh, slighted them or could be a commercial rival or, or there could be any number of personal reasons why you could institute a complaint. You get the funding from the state to back your cause and the your poor uh, defendant is, is on their own. Exactly. So I think it's always worth thinking about how legislation can be abused. Um, and as you point out, it could be a way of setting, setting up your commercial adversaries by um, making a spurious complaint um, against one of the employees and trying to hold them liable. Um, and because it's so, it's quite hard to determine what would be spurious, um, because all someone has to say is, well, I suffered prejudice, you know, based on, you know, this person's conduct, or their lack of conduct. Um, and that you could then push them through that legal process at no risk, because the state's covering your expenses, you know, that's very much a concern. It can also be used as an extortion tactic, which is, you know, often what happens in litigation is that, you know, the one side has more money, and the other side, you know, has only so many resources available to them. And it's made quite clear that if the litigation keeps going on, you know, it's going to bankrupt them. Um, so, you know, you can have a situation where someone is hounded. Um, and the sense will be like, look, we don't think we would actually win our litigation against you if this had to be adjudicated, but it would cost you a fortune to fight us. So why don't you settle? Why don't you, you know, give us something? Um, so there's very much that concern, because as the complainant, you know, you're not the one paying for your legal fees if it's paid for by the state. Now, one of the other points is that this would necessitate a change to pretty much every single law in South Africa. Uh, is that a correct interpretation of this proposed draft law? Yes, I'll, I'll read you an extract from what comes out in the bill, and it gives you a real sense of this um, utopian vision. So it says, the measures to be adopted by the state to achieve equality must proactively address systemic and multidimensional patterns of inequality and discrimination found in social structures, rules, attitudes, actions, or omissions, which prevent the full and equal enjoyment of rights and freedoms as contemplated in the Constitution, including equal access to resources, opportunities, benefits, advantages, and social goods. And the proposal is that all existing law uh, must be overhauled uh, to comply with this grand vision. So all government ministers have to go and look at, you know, the law that's in their sector and see whether uh, it meets these objectives. Now, just think about the cost involved in such a legislative review. I mean, this would be the most dramatic upheaval you know, of our law that we've ever seen in this country. And again, this is something that is completely and utterly smuggled into the bill. Um, you know, no one was was alerted to this in the very brief ad advertisement that was put out by uh, you know, the Ministry for Justice. So I think something to be concerned about. And, you know, what's hard about these things is these words all sound lovely, you know, 
who doesn't want to have you know lots of opportunities and you know we all have equal rights and freedoms but once you start talking about resources once you start saying that everybody needs to have the same stuff well at whose cost someone's got to pay for that stuff you know um mm. and and once we start talking about you know people feeling like they're prejudiced um from the acts and omissions of others well then we start to have to have regulations of people's behavior and encouragements that they must act in a certain way and it just creates this this inertia and this anxiety it's not very good for really what the purpose of the legislation was for which is really to try and you know overcome a lot of the wrongs that we had in our past to have a you know a non-racial society that's premised on, on a kind of reconciliation as opposed to one that is about you know pitting everyone against everyone else constantly mark i think a recent example that uh, could be illustrative is that of the clicks saga with the EFF and uh, the Tresemme shampoo ad, uh, which was perceived by many people to be quite racist or insulting. Uh, that seems to me to be uh, a kind of a, a foretaste of what might be to come. Uh, excessive amounts of uh, manufactured outrage, uh, you know, actual manifestations of violence against uh, the retailer, the retailer themselves being held vicariously liable uh, for the actions of their agency that that ran the ad. Um, do, do you think that that's an exaggerated risk? Uh, or do you think that that's, uh, that's an appropriate uh, example to give? I think it's a very appropriate example, because I think what would have happened is that um, people would have looked at the act as it stands, uh, it would have been quite apparent that you, uh, there is no remedy against clicks or against advertisers for that ad. Um, there, there was some litigation that ensued as a result of it um, to to remind people of the sort of outrage of the moment um, was you had an ad that had uh, different descriptors of, of shampoos so you know shampoos are sort of described in various ways so for fine hair in other words if you have very thin hair um, for uh, normal hair which is not seen as a good thing like buoyant hair would be seen as a good thing um, for dry hair and for damaged hair um, and so they're different products for those purposes and fine and normal had white models and damaged and dry had black models and this was viewed as prejudicial uh, and racist now as i say under the current act there would be no remedy um, but what this act would do is because you can remove intent and because someone can claim that they felt prejudiced by the act well you don't just have to hold the person who made the ad liable you can hold mm -hmm. the employers liable um, so you know, I, I very much think that that Clicks case was born in mind in the drafting of this amendment. The other case that I think we should think about is the case against uh, GEMS, which is um, the it's the government uh, medical aid system, and uh, they have a, a process for determining whether um, doctors have engaged in some sort of wasteful or fraudulent expenditure when they're claiming. And um, what they've done. Uh, them and discovery is they basically have a, a a system which removes all of the racial information from its doctors and um, you you kind of get allocated a number and then they look at um, whether you uh, appear to have engaged in some kind of fraudulent conduct um, based on you know other underlying variables and after doing this exercise it turns out that more black doctors are being investigated than white doctors and so there was a preliminary finding that this constituted um, unfair discrimination and that the second phase is to determine whether it could be justified in terms of the act now discovery's claim was they said well at no 
juncture did we ever intend on targeting anyone on the grounds of their race. It just so happens to be the case that the algorithm has churned up, you know, a difference. Um, but there's no racial targeting going on. You know, we're not trying to discriminate against someone on the grounds of their race. So, you know, we must remind ourselves, why do we think discrimination is a bad thing? You know, we think it's a bad thing if you say to someone, you know, you can't uh, work for me because you're black, or this is a restaurant where we don't accept gay people. You know, we think those overt acts of discrimination are a problem and that you might want to have law to, you know, uh, to prevent those acts of discrimination. Um, but that's very different from what's envisaged by this, which is really to just look at outcomes as opposed to intent. So Mark, given what you said, which I agree with, that you need some kind of mechanism to deal with actual instances of discrimination rather than just mere perceptions of discrimination. Uh, I mean, how do, we, how do we get the balance right here? Um, is it the case that we perhaps need to introduce more of a, an idea of toleration for ideas that we disagree with or that we find offensive? Yes, I think tolerance has become a kind of dirty word, which is which is strange. You know, the idea is that when you tolerate something, it's not that you approve of it, it's that you, you say, I disagree with it, but I think you should be allowed to say it, that there should be no sanction for you engaging in that conduct. So if you think about, you know, one way that people were persuaded um, that we ought to have gay marriage was to say, well, you might not want to, you know, get gay married, but other people do, and it's important to them. And to tolerate that means to give them that freedom, even if you disagree with it, even if you think that, you know, it offends your fundamental sensibilities, it's not harming anyone else, and therefore you should tolerate it. Um, and there are going to be many things that offend us, uh, that aren't actually harmful, and we might disagree with them. But the idea is that we ought to tolerate them. Now, one of the reasons why you might want to tolerate things is also to kind of get a sense of how much of a risk certain views are. So to give you a rather extreme example, my grandparents fled Nazi Germany. Now, I think if someone denies that the Holocaust occurred, I think they've done something rather despicable. But I don't think they should be jailed for it, because I want to know how many people deny the Holocaust, because if that number starts to rise, then I know that we need to spend more attention as a society to educate people about the Holocaust. Once you ban that topic, then you lose all that information. Then we don't really know how many people hold this hateful idea and how much attention we need to address it. You know, this, this worry with banning content is that you drive it underground. It doesn't eradicate the view. It doesn't make the belief go away. It just makes it go into hiding. And the worry with it going into hiding is that it's, you can develop this extreme polarized echo chamber and eventually it sort of bubbles up in acts of real violence. You know, you'd much rather have people fighting with each other using their words than fighting with each other, you know, using physical weapons. And the advantage of being able to test out ideas, even if those ideas are quite despicable, is that they remain in that realm of words where you're not actually causing, you know, real harm. Now, I'm not a free speech absolutist. I think there are certain kinds of words that incite violence. They call on people to go and visit genuine bodily harm on vulnerable groups. And I think there's reasons, you know, uh, to push back against that and to censure that kind of speech. And the Equality Act does do some of that. You know, I think there are, you know, certain organizations that really are saying things that are genuinely dangerous that could lead to, you know, imminent attacks on others. Um, and there are certain things that really ought not to be tolerated. But 
there's much that people have sort of clutched their pearls over saying, you know, we shouldn't tolerate this when actually, you know, as a pluralist society, you know, we need to really have this culture of free speech where we say, you know what, we're going to disagree with each other. We're going to say things that are going to offend each other, but we need to allow it to be. Yeah. And that's also an important way for new ideas to come to the fore that sometimes you do have holy cows or norms that need to be confronted and there's often going to be resistance pushback from vested interests when that happens and you want to be able to ventilate those ideas so uh, i think that sunlight is the best disinfectant it also helps you to get rid of of bad ideas and to stress test them um so mark i mean the theme of this podcast is solutions and you know we've been highlighting a lot of the risks in today's conversation but what are the ways in which uh individuals, but also community-based organizations, how can they start to push back against some of this uh, onerous legislation and uh, bring a bit more of a common sense approach into uh, the way in which we regulate speech in South Africa? I think some people have this tendency to throw their hands up and to say, well, what can I do about it? You know, the government's just going to do whatever it likes. And I think one of the things that people forget is that South Africans are actually pretty good at standing up to the state that there are a litany of dangerous bills that have been produced over the years, uh, which civil society has identified and fought back against and managed to stop. So there was the uh, uh, hate crimes and hate speech bill, which had been produced in 2016, um, which would have had dramatic impacts on free speech. And a number of organizations got together and realized this is going to be very dangerous, very bad for newspapers, for individuals, for religious organizations, and ultimately that bill was quashed. Um, similarly, if you looked at earlier versions of the cyber crimes bill, um, so there were some very you know, worrying um, sections that had been in that bill. And again, people rose up and they identified those things. And so the, the act that has come in is you know, a lot less concerning than prior versions. So people need to have their voices heard. Uh, their voices do matter. Uh, surprisingly you know government takes notice you might think that this has to do partly with with the anc's view on the balance of forces which is to say that we ought to move towards a national democratic revolution um where we resemble a kind of communist state but that once people push back against that that you should slow down the revolution and people have been pushing back for a long time and it often works very well so i would encourage people to familiarize themselves with the Equality Act, to have a look at the amendments that are being proposed um, and to write a submission. I've written a submission on behalf of AfriForum. Um, um, 4SA have produced a submission you know, on behalf of various religious organizations that are nonpartisan. Um, I gather the IRR have also produced an important um, submission which looks at some of the financial implications of this, the effect it would have on banking, on the insurance industry, on medical aids. Um, so having multiple views on this is very important because you know, there are certain blind spots that we're all going to have. And I think if citizens, you know, step to the fore and have their voices heard, that's going to be very useful. Um, there are multiple ways in which submissions can be done, one of which is through DSL Africa. We have a portal um, where you can go and have a look at the underlying um, legislation and um, you can you can write a submission. It's not a petition. It would be a unique submission in your own name. Mark Oppenheimer, thank you for joining me on Solutions with David Ansar. Absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this discussion, please like this video and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do give this show a five-star review and also share it with your social networks. It really helps the 
the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. This is Solutions with David Ansara. And until next time, take care.